everybody. Welcome back to Adventures in Machine Learning. Uh, I'm one of your two hosts, Ben Wilson, joined by my other co-host, Michael Burke. Hi, everyone. And today we're going to have a very special guest who's going to be giving us a perspective of what it's like studying and writing about AI and talking about it, ML in general, from a university perspective. And one of the interesting things we were talking about before we started the recording this week was that he's not even studying this stuff uh, as a, a main topic in, in his university program. And we were discussing how that that's actually a fairly common thing in in industry. A lot of, a lot of people that have been doing it for a while or have gotten into the field and have stuck with it uh, myself included. I, I didn't study any of this stuff. I studied nuclear engineering. I bet a lot of people come from mechanical engineering backgrounds, not just pure math and physics or statistics. And we'll talk a little bit about what the per- perception is about AI in uh, in the university uh, students of today. And and then we'll talk about uh, a couple of blog posts that, that our guest has written and some of the interesting topics that come out of that. So without further ado, if you could uh, introduce yourself, let everybody know who you are. All right. Hi, I'm Machi Palavader, mechanical engineering student. I finished my second year and right now I'm doing my placement year. So internship for one year in industry at ASM Assembly. And I'm actually doing uh, more of a software engineering combined with machine learning. And yeah, in my free time, I'm doing a paper reviews on my YouTube channel, which I recently just created. And I'm also writing a blog post on the Medium. And that's how I got found by you. And yeah, today I'm in a Adventures in Machine Learning. Awesome. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv, and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So what do you see as the big difference when you went to that internship and you see how people do stuff in, you know, in practice versus kind of how things are structured in school? Did you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I think the biggest difference was that at university, you do most of the stuff on your own. Even if you have a like team project, there's a five people, but still you can, there's no much of working with others. But when you go to actual internship, you need to know the structure that's within the company and you need to learn the structure that it's there. And you need some sort of mentorship along the way. So yeah, the whole process is just completely different. Also, the creating the project is not purely academic when you create the project. You, you just need to keep, like it needs to just run, right? 
you just need to run the program, you just need to create some sort of project, and that's it. But when it comes to the company, you also need to put it into the workflow that already already exists. Mm-hmm. And some of these projects eventually don't fit to the workflow. So yeah, it's it's completely different. And yeah, it's a good experience to actually see how it looks like in real life rather than just only seeing it in the academic kind of thing. Do you think that academics are preparing you for this workflow integration, would you say? Are you getting the skill set you need? No. No. No, I mean I mean not in my university, I would say. It's yeah, it's just completely different. I I don't think yeah, I wasn't prepared as to create the project in the way that we created in the company right now. And basically the, the pace of creating projects is completely different, I would say. Obviously at university you mostly do it closely to your deadlines. And stuff. When you work in a company, you mostly have it more scheduled. So each week you you create something. You have a meeting. You discuss what you already done, and then you move forward. When you in university, you basically leave everything for the last week, and you just uh, you know try to yeah, try to get through it at the end. So yeah, it's just completely different. Yeah, I know there's a couple of schools that in their doctoral program, postdoc, they try to foster. They've learned from industry what's worked in those teams and then yeah and then they're like okay we're gonna model this this around how a startup functions and one of the most successful ones that has done that uc berkeley's which what is now rise lab it used to be amp lab and that incubator because they force people to work in a collaborative environment and people can ask each other questions and help each other out it spawned so many foundational open source projects that have created multi-billion dollar companies over the last 10 years so the founders of of the company that i work for that's where they got started because they tried to do that model do you think that more universities should try to uh, try to adapt that that process of building solutions whether it be traditional air quote hardcore engineering like wrenches and and wires sort of engineering as well as software engineering do you think that's that would something that would benefit the industry yeah, I think especially curriculum these days is not really adapted to put you in a real life workflow. And yeah, I would put more emphasis on the like practical projects, um, implementing the knowledge you already gain and that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's it would be so much easier. And especially working within the group. I think in u- university previously, um, last year I was doing it. It was mostly, especially when we did it during the COVID, it was you literally sit in the house, do it on your own, and that's it. You There was a lack of communication, I would say. So I think, yeah, just put more emphasis on working in the groups, working with others, and yeah. Yeah, it's interesting we bring that up. I, my team is currently, I guess not currently, but this week was at a conference for data science, and they were, basically it was one of the first times they were all in the same room together, and it was really, everybody just loved it. They said that they got to know each other more in like one day than in the two years of working together during COVID. And collaboration is a lot easier in that sense. And I think that's one of the things that COVID has really harmed is in-person communication can lead to a lot more ideas pinging off each other and a lot more innovation and iteration. Uh, So that's just one thing to note. And then another thing to note is at that conference, it was so academically focused that they all just left halfway through and went and got bubble tea. Um, so it's 
there's an interesting divide between the two. Academics tends to bring the proofs that allow a lot of industry things to work, but industry often has to implement it. So if it's too abstract and impractical, it's never used. So bridging the two uh, is a thing that I find very interesting. 100%. And I also think like that's what remote working doesn't actually work because you lack basically like being in a group being in an actual place with the actual people and i think a lot of ideas are coming from like just this quick chat and i remember carl newport i think he was talking about it in one of his book that many professors at mit and, and and elsewhere they basically come out a few times and just come to someone's room and just start to chat and they exchange the ideas and that's how i they basically got the broad overview of what's going on. And I think if you work remotely and you're not in a group, you kind of lack it. And yeah, I, I don't think it, it works. So, yeah. yeah. Ben, what's your experience been working remotely? Uh, I don't like it. Too. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, but yeah. So I've been a remote worker now for, you know, going on five years. And if I was new to the industry, like if it was my first decade of of doing ml or data science or or running software i would absolutely be terrified of doing remote work because you don't it's not that you don't know things or that the things that you know are not relevant to your work it's more you haven't seen enough to know what you don't know and what like when to actually reach out and ask for help versus when to spend some time researching on your own or how to effectively get yourself unblocked or, you know, have listened to and engaged in enough conversations with people who have a different perspective on thinking through problems and, and working on things. So it, it would have been terrifying for me now that I've been doing this for a while and I can work a lot faster and don't I don't need to be looking stuff up all the time when I'm doing an implementation or, or doing my day-to-day -day stuff. So I can work faster if I don't have distractions and it's more efficient for me. But at the same time, that's also detracting from junior people who would benefit from that interaction. So I'm remote not because I don't like humans. I'm remote because I'm just geographically removed from, from my team, like across an entire continent. And in fact, half of our team is in is on the exact opposite side of the world. So we have to be remote, but we do things like daily standups and interact like ad hoc interactions. We talk to each other many times a day in order to get that that interaction. We require video to be turned on so we can see each other and and kind of, you know, put a face to the the voice. And it works pretty well, but it it's it's definitely different when you're physically in the same room as people and you can do that lean across the desk and, and kind of be like, hey, man, uh, can you take a look at this? And like, I can't I can't figure out why this is throwing an exception. And then they'll just be like, oh, check that. OK, sweet. Cool. So, yeah, for, for context, Ben works on some very state of the art, cutting edge problems. I would find it daunting and almost like impossible to work in that environment without any external help. But Ben, you're saying that you overall think you have the technical capabilities to do these giant projects by yourself, or do you still rely a lot on external collaboration and input? Oh, not a single thing, unless we're talking about a bug fix or we're talking about, you know, very simple bit of code that you're writing that doesn't require anybody's input. 
it, it requires them to look at what you've done and approve it. And no matter how senior you are, you, you need that because we're human. We make mistakes. But for any significant project, a serious company is going to have multiple rounds of design review. A lot of documents are written. A lot of meetings are had. And you open it up for all voices to be heard and to inject, like basically absorb all comments and opinions that people have. And that helps to inform and expose what you weren't thinking about. And no matter how, how many years or decades you've been doing a job, I look forward to the comments from people that are like recently out of school. They might be thinking about something in a way that just based on generational gaps, I'm not thinking of in that way. Or, or it's just some new way of thinking that was instructed or that they used while going through school that they can analyze things in a, in a way differently than I do. So I love that feedback. And yeah, I won't work on anything where I've got more than a couple of days of effort that needs to go into it without getting people to at least look at what I'm planning on doing. Yeah, that's what I was basically referring to, like basically guidance. So much easier when you've got people around and they, they also know what they're doing. So they also can guide you. So, yeah. And not all companies are like that, uh, by the way. <laughs> you got lucky with your internship. There are some some companies out there that, that adopt the sink or swim methodology. And it's almost like they set up people for failure or just pump, just dump a bunch of stress on their shoulders. I've seen it with software engineering groups. I've seen it with analytics and, and data and AI groups where the new person to the team, they just get, after they do their onboarding, they get a list of tasks. Like, hey, here's your quarterly goals. Go figure it out. And they're like, well, where's the data? Like, how do, what systems do I need to? And then the, um, you know, the supervisor or mentor was like, oh, it's fine. You'll figure it out. We all go through this. It's like you, you're setting this person up to either they'll either suffer through this pain and get good, but they're going to be sort of turned off to the company because it's a really bad experience to have to go through that stressful, stressful path, or they're just going to quit and find a, a job at a company that doesn't treat them like garbage. So you got lucky with that internship since you're getting mentorship and stuff. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Coming out of school, what types of things do you look for in ML or AI jobs? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm probably going to do master's, to be honest, with AI, because um, I like research. I like the research papers. And I like to read them, implement them. And currently, I, when I was thinking because um, to work during my third year, I also want to work part-time. So I would probably do some computer vision because I got pretty good uh, background in it. So yeah, I would probably look for computer vision jobs and yeah, we'll see how it's going to go. Well, what, what aspects about the role or the company do you look for? Like work-life balance, high pay, big name? Uh, currently part-time. So it's like flexible enough to actually do it while I'm doing university my third year. So that would be great. But yeah, to be honest, as, as I said, I'm looking for a mentorship. So I want to gain experience and also, also meet uh, inspiring people. And yeah, just just have a good team, you know, also work on some interesting stuff i saw lately sterling bank offer they have pretty good job but yeah that's that's what i was thinking of that's the my main thing flexibility in terms of a job and just gain experience that's i think the most important is there any sort of overwhelming desire that 
any of your classmates have or uh, people that are also on internships right now, do, do you keep in contact with them and they say like, oh, I'm working on this this really cool project. And then maybe another person's like, uh, I'm updating tables in the data warehouse. Do, do you have like this wide range of responses from your peers of things that like, they may be doing data science work, but it's a wide variety of work? To be honest, most of the peers from my university, they didn't go on an internship because it's not obligatory. Uh, you can do it, but you don't have to. So yeah, most of my friends didn't go. But most of the response I've got in the company that I'm working, they, they're pretty happy with it. And yeah, they didn't have any complaints about just not doing anything. <laughs> interesting, interesting. And the tasks that you're given right now, how broad are they? Is it highly specific? Uh, like, hey, <laughs> just do this one little project and then we'll move on to the next one? Or is it a wide range of, of things? To be honest, it's wide range because we, um, I don't have, Obviously, I don't have a background in software engineering, but I had to learn Java. I had to learn C Sharp because I was doing Windows app. I was doing data analytics in Power BI. I was also deploying some small machine learning models. So obviously, PyTorch. Yeah, there was like a broad range of, as I said, mix of software, software engineering and machine learning stuff mixed together. So, so deploying PyTorch models and writing Java and C Sharp, that sounds more like an ML engineer role versus the other side of the house in this, you know, like in our field, which is more on the, the pure data science side. Uh, which, one, which one of those paths, if you're going to go down and you know, go through a master's program and then look for a job later on, would you go more on the, the statistics and sort of scripting implementation side of data science work with just building models and, and trying to solve problems? or the more engineering side of what you're doing right now? Uh, definitely, I would go for implementing models. And also, there's the engineering part of machine learning, deep learning. So train them and deploying. So yeah, I would, to be honest, my end goal would be researching, but we will see how it goes. It's obviously a lot of companies require PhD in it. So we'll see how it goes with the masters and what's the options going to be after masters. And yeah, if it's if I can find a job in the research, in, and I think DeepMind has really good offers about it's not only research, but also engineer and you implementing models. But obviously later on, you can go to the researching and going farther with it. So yeah, it's we'll see how it all plays out. Yeah, they have a very interesting infrastructure there uh, in that team and some extremely brilliant people uh, that I've had the pleasure to talk to before. I think you would enjoy it. If that's where your, your path goes, that's a really cool group. For sure, yeah. So kicking on over to the other part of why we're talking today, which is this YouTube channel that you created and your Medium blog post that, that you're writing. Tell us a little bit about why you're, you're doing that and what it is that you're mostly talking about so people can have an idea. Okay, so to start with, I, I begin Medium, writing on Medium around a year ago. So it was purely... I think everyone has that idea at some point that you read something and like, oh, I can do it better. <laughs> oh, I can add something to it, isn't it? So I was um, reading one of the blog posts and I didn't see a clear explanation on, on what of the problem it was Q-learning. So I thought maybe I can write it and just add some information on the top of it. So that's how I started. Um, and yeah, my Medium blog is 
mostly right now about deep learning and like clear explanation of really with using basic visualization and really plain English to explain some of the topics that might be hard, like loss functions, optimizers, normalization. So basically the basics of deep learning and to actually solidify my knowledge and expand it in deep learning. I also started YouTube channel where I do basically a paper walkthrough. So I analyze the paper. I underline, I just cover the key ideas, main concepts of the paper and explain how it basically works. And yeah, I also implement these models in PyTorch and I share them on my GitHub. So I mean, you didn't just do that. Uh, you have a couple of walkthroughs on how to implement neural networks from scratch with NumPy, which yeah. that's a fun exercise. I don't know any listeners out there <laughs> who are involved heavily in deep learning and you really want to understand what's going on like computationally behind the scenes. I think that's an excellent exercise. And I did check out your your post on that. It's like, yeah, this is really well done. This is pretty cool. Um, and it really breaks it down in a way that somebody who maybe doesn't use, maybe they you just use the high-level APIs around like PyTorch or TensorFlow. And you've seen a, you know, a couple of images and, and animated you know, GIFs of this is how convolution works and this is how it's stepping through and you know, like effectively rastering an image. Uh, in order to create these these vectors, but hand coding that in a vector array language or or framework like like NumPy is is pretty darn cool. So definitely check it out. It's worth your time. Yeah, and actually it came from I did some of the courses probably you know Coursera, <laughs> Andrew, Angie. I did some Udemy, and at some point I was just asking myself, Do you really understand what's going on there? Do you really understand how neural network works? Like how a sequence model works and i was like yeah i don't know actually <laughs> I, I actually don't know i need to code it from scratch <laughs> get to that low level and build on it and actually understand it so i can use it so that was my main idea and that's what i actually right now i'm doing so all of the other posts about loss functions and normalization and all that stuff is just to basically really deeply understand what's going on in deep learning and machine learning. And most of the stuff that I'm doing out there is built from scratch. So like from first person principle, like from the basics blocks mm -hmm. to really understand it. And yeah, that's what I'm doing on Medium. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. And the one that we initially, you know, read and found with the optimizers, basically, like, what loss function should you be choosing for a particular different use case uh, fits in pretty well to a topic we were talking about a, 
I don't know how many more episodes ago, Michael, where we were, we were saying like, well, what should we use for for a, in a like a, basically a validation score for a particular type of model? And I really liked how you presented that with showing like, hey, here's how this thing would fit, and this is how it's optimizing this you know linear equation to fit these data points. Here's one without outliers. This is why this particular metric is pretty safe for that. And then here's one with you know extreme outlier, and here's actually how it's going to fit if it's optimized to this metric. And those core fundamentals, a lot of people assume that most data scientists coming into a role like just know all that stuff. But it it's not something I've seen that's very common until people need to learn it. For practitioners, people are usually like, ah, we just always use RMSE, and that that's what we optimize to. It's like, well your business is complaining about this outlier that the model is not able to capture. You're optimizing your model to basically ignore that. And this is why you have this issue. So what if you change to a slightly different, more slight, maybe it might seem like an esoteric algorithm, but you talked about one with the, uh, the uh, Pareto error metric where it's robust to, to outliers, but also the way it, in which it calculates its actual metric makes it so that your model, if it's optimizing to that metric for iterations, you might get away from problems of fit where it's overfitting on things that you don't want it to do. So I think people understanding how all of that stuff works and why why these equations were built in the first place. And if you look back far enough, some of these equations, if you look at the original research paper, I always, I always like have people that I'm mentoring I love the mind blowing thing that I that I can do where I'm like, hey, you know, like all this stuff about deep learning and and people are like, yeah, yeah, like TensorFlow, PyTorch, these are all, yeah, it's cutting edge. I'm like, yeah, but you know the like original papers that were written about that? They're like, well, well, no, the packages were just released a couple of you know years ago. I'm like, maybe 14, 15 years ago. I'm like, no, 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 Like look for the the things that those papers are referencing, like the original ideas, and then people's minds just get blown when they're realizing hang on, this was thought up before computers were a thing. And people were doing this on paper with pencils and theorizing about how this would work. Like, yep. And a lot of the other algorithms that are out there, linear regression, that process, that's not even 20th century stuff. And that's that's hundreds of years before that. Uh, so it's it's always fun to see that. Um, and uh, it made, like when reading through a couple of your posts and about how it, they are written from that first principles perspective, I just kind of like sort of smiled to myself. I was like, yeah, this guy's going back to original sort of research about it. like, hey, here's the equation, but I'm going to explain the equation and demonstrate with with plots and, and a, an example that makes it very understandable. Yeah, I think if you don't ask why when you do something, you are likely to fail. When something is, doesn't work in your code, you're just like, I don't know what's going on because I don't understand how it works, right? So if you ask yourself why and you build it layer by layer, your understanding of the subject, you basically, if something fails, you you can actually identify the problem and solve it. So I think in order to really be in a field, I need to understand the, how it works, right? To build a model, I need to understand how it works. Uh, that's, that's, yeah, that's... Being devil's advocate a bit, there's, let's say... Let's say you're building whatever model you're building. There are no doubt 10 to 20 tutorials that will do something similar online. Why do you need to understand deeply what's going on? 
when you're just optimizing accuracy. Yeah, mostly when it fails, <laughs> you you then don't know what it's failing, why it's failing. So, so it helps you debug. You understand, what else? I guess mainly you just feel. I think if you do something blindly, it's it's kind of loses also its its point. I don't actually have a pleasure, for example, when I write some of the code or like do some project. If I copy it from, let's say, already built repo you know it's not the same even pleasure when you do it on your own and you actually understand it and obviously it's also you can't share your work when you don't understand something like how can you write an article about loss functions when you don't understand how they work like it doesn't make sense isn't it i mean there's there's hundreds of them that have been published <laughs> um yeah <laughs> but they help me but they help me to understand isn't it yeah it, to get one yeah. that you can read and you're like okay I, I'm not familiar with this topic, but after reading these seven pages, I know where to go next or what the next topics to understand are. And that's the benefit of a well-written series of blog posts, which both of you do. And, uh, and just one thing I want to mention, I, uh, basically, if you learn how to learn things, it's going to be easier for whatever you're going to do. So it's not only on machine learning or whatever topic you do. If you learn how to learn, you can learn whatever you want. Right. And if you learn how to break down problems to basic principles, it's going to be so much easier later on in life, isn't it? Definitely. Could not have said it better. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I remember in the ML Flow podcast, just something that really stuck with me was someone said that the key to learning things quickly is having the fundamentals down because the fundamentals transfer to a lot of different types of problems. So if you really understand what's going on on the back end of simple things, then you can use those as building blocks for more complex things. So that may, I completely agree. There's a really good blog post from Carpathi, Andre Carpathi, and he actually wrote that you, in order to actually work on the deep learning projects, you need to understand how to build the backprop first. That was his main idea. So his idea was basically you need to break down everything to simple pieces and build on it in order to really understand. And yeah, I'm, I'm totally uh, agree with it. But yeah. And what are some advantages of understanding things deeply that you've seen? Ooh. I mean, if you understand how, like in a context of specificity with, with ML, if you understand how something like the internals of, you know, a lot of people use stuff like, like tools for supervised learning. Everybody's using stuff like XGBoost, LightGBM, and these high-level packages that make the process of building something simpler because they're abstracting away the complexity of the internals which I, I'm a big proponent of. I think that's very important. But there's a lot of, if you look at the API docs for any of these packages and just look at the fit method for XGBoost, for instance, read through the API docs and see if you can understand without looking at the description, just the name of the argument, what everything does. And if you don't know what that stuff does, even after you go back and read the description in the docs, and if you're still like, I have no idea what this does, how are you going to tune it? How are you going to change those values in the places and times where you should change them? And also knowing that a lot of those those knobs that are exposed there, yeah, they have defaults, but they're defaults because you need a value to be there in place. You can't, they're not going to put a none. They, they put that default in visibility of the user to sort of, let the user know this is what the placeholder is. Some of them are things that you can just leave alone, uh, particularly when you're just rapidly iterating. But there's other things about, uh, I can't even tell you how many times I've, I've talked to teams that they're like, 
yeah, our model accuracy is is super great. Like, okay, what's the what's the distribution uh, of the split between your for your binary classification uh, task that you're doing? And they're like, oh yeah, it's like fifty fifty. Cool, awesome. And what's your accuracy measurement? And they're like, oh, it's you know, on holdout data, it's ninety nine point nine nine eight percent. Like, do you do you think that's good? They're like, yeah, it's great. Is this like such a, a perfect, perfect model? And then you come to find out when looking through their code that that validation data set, the split that they did was actually post-training. So the model actually already saw that data and it's now just validating on something that it already trained on. And you're like, okay, now let's take prod data and let's run it through the same feature engineering pipeline that you did for this model. Let's validate it there. And you're like, okay. It's 0.05 accurate. It's garbage. Uh, it learned like the complete wrong things. Uh, it just overfit. And then they're like, well, what went wrong? Like, let's look at the actual decision logic that's coming from this model. Let's print out this, this tree. And you look at it and you're scrolling for hundreds and hundreds of pages through font size eight of if-else statements. It's like, well, when you modified this particular argument to say, yeah, I only want 100 trees, but I want max tree depth to be 800. That's A, why it was taking forever to fit. But B, that's why there's only one element in each leaf of this. So it's it's going down through this decision matrix and saying, okay, if it meets this exact criteria, it's, it's this is the value. Uh, so understanding like how those algorithms work from a a general concept is incredibly important, but also understanding a little bit about the implementation details about what this argument or this parameter actually does in the execution of training. And I'm sure, you know, based on some of your blog posts that I'm looking at, you do a lot of computer vision stuff uh, and a lot of stuff with like PyTorch. And what would you say is, is important about understanding those APIs of frameworks? Yeah, I used them before, actually, before I wrote any of this post. And yeah, it was just, you know, if I had some of the... I couldn't create stuff on my own, actually. Because I always use the already someone done some implementation. Mm -hmm. You know, I was copied. Or, you know, um, I had one more convolution, but I don't know why there's a batch, batch normalization, you know. And I don't know what batch normalization does. Maybe I'm going to put it after fully connected layer, you know. <laughs> And and essentially, you don't know how to move around this stuff and you don't know how they work. And when you actually understand how they work and why they are put there, because everything you got in machine learning and everywhere is just put for a reason, right? So if you understand this reason, you can actually manipulate it later on. You can actually, oh, maybe this fully connected layer shouldn't be here. I'm going to put something else. Or maybe if I get this out, you know, so it's it allows you to do much more stuff when you understand them. Basically, space of actions expanded. <laughs> but also, I think understanding stuff builds your craft mm -hmm. in the field. You become really good at something, and it's naturally rewarding if you become better and better. You just feel good. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That, and that brings up a great point that you said about changing model architecture for deep learning when you start haphazardly just trying stuff out. Uh, which we've all been there when we started playing around with these libraries. Like I, I did it too. I'm like, okay, I'm going to take ResNet model. Let's see what this, you know, architecture looks like. And just like, huh, wonder what happens if I add something here, like, like change the optimizer here. Yeah, I'm going to create a pooling layer here. And you'd sort of brute force explore the API. At least that's what I, I do that with most packages. Even t today, I do that. 
if it's not something that's you know work related and i'm just trying to learn something i'll play around with the examples and the demos try to get familiar with like oh this is what this is when execution happens this is how i can access things from this but when it's when it's something that i would be applying to a work related task or like hey i need to interface with this api and create a wrapper for it i have to go into the source code and dig through like how does this implementation actually work and why is this part of it so slow or why is this so you know why is there a conflict here if i set this parameter why does it throw an exception here and i have to look through it and understand it but there's another aspect of ml that some data scientists are not wholly ignorant of but it's not a priority for them and then there's other data science and and pretty much every ml engineer out there at the top forefront of their their worry is production stability and cost and production stability you can't attain that if you don't know what's going on with that that example that you gave about like hey should i I change this layer should i move these around if you don't know what those layers do and why they're there and how to manipulate them when production has an issue or your deployed model starts drifting like crazy and it predicts nonsense it's going to be a very painful experience like trying to troubleshoot what what's going on and like where do you start uh and then that cost part of it is if you don't know which of those settings or how your implementation is going to affect the runtime and the amount of computing resources that you need, you might not care about it. Like a, a data science practitioner might not care, and a lot of them don't. But I guarantee you, somebody at your company is going to care a whole lot. And like, hey, why did we spin up sixty-four TPUs on on G, on Google Cloud that ran for three weeks straight? You know, that's coming out of your budget, right? People get really upset about that. And it could be that, hey, you wrote a for loop where you should have, you know, distributed something or some part of the code was locked as single threaded and it should have been asynchronous. You know, without that knowledge and without that that discipline to figure out how stuff works, uh, solving either of those problems is, is very challenging. And I think it goes also to the, if you want to do research, you got to understand this stuff, right? so so that's what i'm basically breaking it down also to to understand and yeah later on whatever you're gonna do you need this understanding that's that's my idea i know some of the people don't do it they just use api and yeah use resnet 50 pre-train true (laughs) let's go for it but yeah um i just rather do it this way in a more meaningful way and more yeah just more understanding Rather than just yeah. blindly following, you know, something that's already been done. Yeah. Yeah. And one more point on that. Um, one of the things that I have really benefited from, from going really deep into simple mathematical concepts. So like if you really understand RMSE, you start developing intuition about how it works. Like you laid out some really good frameworks, sort of like axes for when you're choosing which loss metric you want to use. Well, all right. Sensitivity to outliers, interpretability, speed of calculation. And you can sort of think of these as expanding features in a feature space for selecting whatever metric you want to use. But that's very analytical. And sometimes you just sort of want an intuitive understanding of, well, if I increase this feature by a little bit, will RMSE be sensitive? Like that, just having sort of intuition about how those fundamental components work really helps you develop solutions a lot faster. And it also, as Ben was saying, it helps them generalize. Um, You have a lot more faith in the stability of those metrics if you really know what's going on. So um, 
it, it's it's also kind of fun. Like some people don't like getting into the weeds, but sometimes it, it's. I personally love going in and like even writing stuff out by hand because you're like, oh, that if I do this, then this happens. If I do that, then that happens. So just a little plug for. <laughs> learning deeply yeah you know, we are machines after all that gonna find patterns everywhere <laughs> right <laughs> so it's really cool to develop this kind of high level low level understanding of the subjects and as, as you said before michael it's just transferable to other domains right if you learn how to learn you can do it you can do whatever you want so hey folks if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages then you're in luck we're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv premium. I mean, I've always yeah. been a proponent, uh, and I've always said for many decades now, the purpose of university is not to teach information. It's If you think about any domain that you're studying, even if you're doing postdoc research, that's going to be highly narrowly focused on one very small subdomain of a much broader uh, ecosystem of knowledge. But undergrad into a graduate program, you're becoming more finely tuned, not so much in just knowing a lot of things about a topic, but it's the process of the rigor that you need to achieve in order to understand something at that level of information and fully understand everything about it uh, of that subdomain and that's what's most critical in a technical field in industry we have very short not so much short monetary budgets or, or small monetary budgets in industry we have short time budgets and there's always thousands of competing ideas for ways to spend your time and ways to spend your energy and your your human resource capital in a data science team or where I work now in a software engineering team, our backlog is thousands of elements big. I mean, we have a backlog that I've never seen in any other company. And that you go through it and you're like, wow, like 90% of these are all really good ideas. Like these are things that people would really enjoy and would really work on. We're never going to get them. Like it's never going to happen. So being able to, because you're, you're human resource constrained, in these, these jobs, you have a limited time budget to get things out. And if you're fumbling around and not really understanding how pieces fit into you know to one another or how to analyze super complex things in a way that you can distill it down to those base parts and saying, okay, I know how service A interacts with feature B. And that means when I create feature C, I know how to interface with these things the, that's sort of the golden thing that you get from university i think and i wouldn't say it's something that everybody sees in that way a lot of people are like hey diploma is a, is a ticket to to a salary and it allows me to go on and do something with my life that i'm gonna get paid a lot of money and i'm gonna work on, you know do these cool things so i think it's refreshing to to hear from somebody who's in school right now who's got that mentality because the mentality you're talking about is what makes world-class software developers, world-class data scientists, ML engineers, it will serve you well in your career. Yeah, thank you. I, I think one thing to add is what you describe is basically rat race. So everyone just wants to, you know, have a goal and just basically want to achieve it as soon as possible. And the university for many people and diplomas, that kind of goal, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of people are saying you shouldn't focus on the goal, rather on the journey. 
So the only way to focus on the journey is actually develop skills on the way and don't actually look only at the goal, but also what you're doing, how you meaningfully can gain from the time that you are at university, at your work, at what you're doing in your free time. And yeah, and understanding stuff is one of the best way to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the best way to do it. Definitely. This has been like an inspirational talk episode. This is great. We don't usually <laughs> do this. This is awesome. Uh, I, I Lately, I've been reading a lot of Carl Newport. So <laughs> I don't know if you know him. He wrote a book about deep work and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. How to live more deep life, let's say. So yeah. It's words of wisdom. Yeah. I mean, essentially, whatever skills you learn, if you do it meaningfully, then it's then it serves you on many different platforms. And then, yeah, as I said before, we just develop skills that are transferable. And whatever you're going to do, I think the simple example is if you learn programming language and you understand how it works in general, and not only the syntax, basically, you can easily go to other uh, programming language and start to code it, right? But if you learn only the syntax, <laughs> yeah. If you if they, if you go to the other programming language, it's going to be really tough, isn't it? So yeah, if you understand the underlying patterns of whatever you do, yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's going to come easier. Yeah, and for any listeners that are out there that are thinking about like, hey, what is this whole like ML engineer role in industry, and what are some skill sets that you need? That's one of them. The number of languages that you might have to touch as an ML engineer in industry, you could be writing stuff in probably a lot of Python, depending on your company, a lot of Java, could be some Scala, definitely SQL, probably many different forms of of, uh, SQL. And you're probably going to also need to know how to be an expert level scripter, specifically Linux command line scripting, and potentially PowerShell scripting. And you might need to learn some .NET languages. You will probably be exposed to C++ at some time. And being able to understand the, the fundamentals in each of those languages and what they can and can't do and what they're optimized for and what they're not optimized for will allow you to make the right decision of what to choose for an implementation. Like you, you more than likely aren't going to be writing ML implementation in base.NET C-sharp. You'd have to write the library from scratch, waste of time, just use Python for doing your training, for serving. Depending on what your infrastructure needs are, you're probably not going to use base Python for that. You're going to be, you know, doing some sort of vectorized operation on numeric vectors. So it's going to be Cython. And you're going to compile that and make it so that there's almost no processor latency while processing that, that, uh, that row of data effectively. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more with the, like those transferable skills of understanding how this thing works so that you can know, like, oh, that's how memory allocation works in Python versus the JVM is completely different and hash tables are different than heap, you know, garbage collection management. That will really serve anybody who's in this field to, to grok that. All right. Any closing thoughts? Anything that it, the two of you would like to just bring up? This has been fun. We're, we're kind of running on time. But uh, any final parting words? I would say enough words of wisdom for today. <laughs> so, <no. laughs> All right. So yeah, I'll second that. So in the, yeah. the pod, in this episode's description, we'll have links to uh, your YouTube channel, uh, definitely to your Medium blog posts that have been sure. done. And what I really hope for is a year from now, you'll be back on talking about the next thing that you've learned, your next internship, 
and how you've applied some of these things to your journey in learning this. So yeah, best of luck in in the next yeah. next uh, many months of your life and your journey in learning all of this stuff and, and helping <laughs> others learn. Yeah, thank you. It was a great talk. Thank you for inviting me. And yeah, all right. Have a good day. All right. So until yeah, next time, you. we'll uh, we'll see you. I've been Ben Wilson and Michael Burke. And thanks everybody. Bye everyone. Cheers. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.